Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, April 16th. In today's news, President Trump's attempt to enlist business in his push to reopen the economy is off to a rocky start. As humans stay indoors, wild animals are taking back what was once theirs, and survivors share what it's like to be alive on the other side of the coronavirus. But first, the big idea. In a desperate bid to find treatments for people sickened by COVID-19, doctors and drug companies have launched more than 100 human experiments in the United States alone. There are more than 500 worldwide. They're investigating a hodgepodge of experimental drugs, a decades-old malaria medicine, and cutting-edge therapies that have worked for other conditions like HIV or rheumatoid arthritis. Development of effective treatments would be one of the most significant milestones in returning to normalcy. But multiple researchers and health experts tell us that the massive effort is disorganized and scattershot, harming its prospects for success. Researchers working around the clock describe a lack of a centralized national strategy, overlapping efforts, an array of small-scale trials that will not lead to definitive answers, and no standards for how to prioritize efforts, what data to collect, or how to share it to get answers faster. Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health, the nation's largest biomedical research agency, acknowledged these frustrations yesterday. But he tells us that he has been working behind the scenes to launch an unprecedented public-private partnership to address these problems. He says the framework involves top pharmaceutical companies, including Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson, as well as domestic and international government agencies like the European Medicines Agency and several academic research centers. Collins says the month-long discussions have been kept under wraps to ensure buy-in for an approach that will require sacrifices of personal recognition, scientific credit, and profit. For example, a centralized decision will need to be made not to proceed with certain tests of one company's drug in order to move faster on a competitor's. He says he'll share further details on this partnership in the coming days. Obviously, the more we can learn about this invisible enemy that's ravaging our country, the better equipped we can be to turn the tide. Sadly, We keep hearing more from frontline physicians who say that the coronavirus isn't just destroying the lungs of their patients. It's also damaging kidneys and brutalizing hearts. As we discussed earlier this week, the coronavirus kills by inflaming and clogging the tiny air sacs in the lungs, choking off the body's oxygen supply until it shuts down the organs essential for life. But clinicians are seeing more evidence that suggests the virus may be causing severe heart inflammation, acute kidney disease, neurological malfunction, blood clots, intestinal damage, and liver problems. These developments have complicated the treatment of the most severe cases. Doctors and researchers say the prevalence of these effects is too great to attribute them solely to the so-called cytokine storm which is the medical term to describe what happens when our powerful immune systems kick into overdrive to try to repel the viral attack, but then wind up causing more harm than good. The latest research from Yale shows that about half of all people who have been hospitalized because of the coronavirus have blood or protein in their urine, indicating early damage to the kidneys. Everyone we've been interviewing stresses that this pandemic is still raging 
and they're speculating with much less data than would normally be needed to reach solid clinical conclusions. That's why what Francis Collins is trying to do at the NIH is so critically important. The U.S. death toll has now topped 30,000, and we have 637,000 confirmed cases in our country. More than 130,000 people have died globally, and there are 2.1 million confirmed infections. One of the latest deaths is Mary Agyapong, a 28-year-old pregnant nurse who contracted the coronavirus while working at a British hospital. Her daughter was delivered. She didn't make it. Evelyn Caro, a 69-year-old nurse in Maryland, died as her son, who followed in her footsteps to become a nurse, tried to save her. Madvi Aya worked long hours in a Brooklyn ER until the virus took her down. She spent her final days isolated in the hospital as a patient. She texted with her family, which wasn't allowed to come visit. Initially, she sent long messages with updates for her husband and kids. But as she grew sicker, the texts grew shorter. When her 18-year-old daughter, Manoli, texted, quote, I miss you, Mommy. Madvi responded, Mom will be back. But she couldn't keep that promise. It was her final text. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, several senior American business leaders are privately complaining that President Trump's effort to reopen the economy is haphazard, and they warned him during private conversations yesterday that more testing must be in place before he can lift the restrictions on May 1st. The president spent much of the day hosting conference calls with CEOs, industry groups, and others who he had announced on Tuesday would be part of a hastily formed outside advisory council devoted to the issue. But in C-suites across the country, there's a lot of private unhappiness with how he has handled the announcement of the advisory council. Some of the groups involved in yesterday's calls were notified in advance that Trump was going to be putting them on the council, but others heard their names for the first time during a Rose Garden event on Tuesday night when Trump announced them a prominent Washington lobbyist for a leading global corporation, said he got a note about a White House conference call, just like you'd get an invite for a Zoom meeting or something. There were a few lines saying, call in, and that was it. Then the CEO of this lobbyist company heard his name read aloud in the Rose Garden by the president and had no idea what was being talked about. So then the CEO called the lobbyist with some choice profanities to wonder what the heck was going on. This really captures in miniature the administration's chaotic and dysfunctional approach to the entire crisis. Number two, it's not easy being a baby sea turtle hatching into a human's world. Curious children, leashless dogs, oblivious joggers, the dangers are many. Some never complete their postnatal dash to the ocean. But in recent days, videos have been emerging showing hundreds of baby turtles moseying their way toward the water along Brazil's northeast coast, unmolested by people or pets and unencumbered by anxiety. The beach is empty. People, fearful for their lives, are inside. Outside, though, the natural world blooms. For centuries, humans have pushed wildlife into smaller and smaller corners of our planet. 
But now, with billions in isolation and city streets emptied, nature is pushing back. Wild boar have descended onto the streets of Barcelona. Mountain goats have overtaken a town in Wales. Whales are chugging into Mediterranean shipping lanes. And turtles are finally getting some peace. While some stories of animal invasion that have gone viral have been fake, it turns out elephants did not get drunk on Chinese corn wine and pass out in a tea garden, the apparent resiliency of the natural world is leavening this global tragedy with brief moments of wonderment. Number three, about 44,000 of our fellow Americans have now survived COVID-19. One of them is Jill Barron, a triathlete and the president of the American Board of Emergency Medicine. Jill says the first nine days were bearable. She had a cough, a scratchy throat, and some lower back pain. But the next eight days turned horrific. She had severe fevers, chest pain, cramps, fatigue, diarrhea, and dehydration that kept her in the hospital. Last week, though, fully recovered, Jill returned to caring for patients on the front lines of the fight. She says it feels empowering to have been through this because now she has antibodies that her colleagues in the hospital don't. So she doesn't need to live in dire fear that if a droplet goes through her protective clothing, she could die. Madeline Long from Bowie, Maryland, is a breast cancer survivor and the CEO of a company that produces devices for digital mammography. She says she was terrified. For three days, every time she went to sleep, she didn't think she'd wake up again. She said she literally could not breathe at several moments. She spent five long days in the hospital. She says it was worse than anything she ever went through with breast cancer. But she beat it, and now she's home. Asked how she's feeling, there was silence and then sobbing. Then she said, I guess I've answered your question. The survivors say they feel lucky and weepy and invincible and relieved and tired and motivated and perplexed and altered, forever altered. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, April 16th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Homan. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.